Atlanta is marking 185 years in 2023 uh, from its founding back in 1837, of December 1837. And as I recall, some of the uh, the initial uh, folks who founded the city who drove a mile post, mile marker at the end of the Western and Atlantic Railroad said that Atlanta wouldn't be good for much more than a couple of training posts and a couple of trail crossheads or cross ties, cross figures. Obviously, that has not been the case. Atlanta has grown into one of the world's major metropolitan areas, and you're joining us here as Atlanta News First continues our digital coverage on important events in Atlanta history. Is best-selling and internationally acclaimed author Thomas Mullen. He is the author of seven novels, including one coming out coming out later in 2023, which we'll get to. But Thomas, the, the ones that that really struck me, and I've read all of their all of your novels and just enjoyed them tremendously. But yeah, Dark Town uh, and Midnight Atlanta and Lightning Men were three that really struck me because we talk about a very important um, message or, or or event in Atlanta history in 1948 where the city of Atlanta Police Department hired the very first African-American police officers ever hired on the force. There were eight of them. From your standpoint, looking back in all of your research, what was it? about these men in this period of time in Atlanta's history and that really drove you to want to write these novels and tell tell the story of these eight very brave, courageous, and remarkable men. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for the compliments. I'm glad you enjoyed the books. I had a lot of fun writing them. I had a lot of fun researching them. There's a lot of different things that appealed to me and that really struck me as a storyteller made this a subject I really wanted to dive into. One of which is that it was a really important like precursor to the civil rights movement. You know, when most of us are taught about the civil rights movement, um, a lot of the key events like the Montgomery bus boycott and you know the Freedom Rides take place later in, in the 1950s and into the 1960s. But you know, there was a lot going on under the surface far before then, you know, going back to the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, and so in 1948, the city of Atlanta hired eight African-American police officers for the first time. And this is a really big deal for the city for a lot of reasons. Um, the, the community leaders have been asking for black cops for, for years, for generations, really, and mayors are always put them off. But uh, for a variety of reasons, it finally happened in 48. One of the reasons was that in 1944, the Supreme Court outlawed all white primaries. So finally, black voters could vote in the Democratic primary, which at the time was, you know, the primaries were really the only elections that mattered in the South at the time, because it was the, the so-called solid South. It was you know, voting for the, the Democratic Party was really the only thing that mattered because the South was united as Democrats against the Republican Party because Abe Lincoln was a Republican. Um, but so now that black voters could vote, um, well, to go back a step, Mayor Hartsfield had promised black leaders years earlier that, well, get 10,000 registered black voters and then I'll let you, I'll let you have black police officers. Um, and it was a, sort of a cruel thing to say, also sort of a savvy thing to say, because on the one hand, you know, blacks couldn't really vote in the elections at that time. But also, Hartsfield saw the writing on the wall. He saw that the black community was growing in Atlanta and he saw that you know, eventually they would 
of the vote. And so in after 44, they had it. And so there was a giant voter registration effort in the mid-40s led by people like Martin Luther King Sr., the father of, you know, who would soon become the very famous Martin Luther King Jr. At the time, I think he was still a college student. But there was a huge voter registration drive. I think they registered 18,000 black voters. So they went back to Mayor Harshfield and said, all right, Mr. Mayor, you said get 10,000 votes. We got 18,000. We'd like some cops now. So finally, the city hired black cops. So it was a really interesting story. And it's sort of like laying the groundwork for what will become the civil rights movement. Atlanta will be a capital of the civil rights movement in many ways. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. It's sort of the story before the story. Um, you know, we learn a lot about World War II. We learn a lot about, you know, the 50s and McCarthyism and then the civil rights movement in the mid 50s. But then the late 40s struck me as this like period that really hadn't been explored that much in fiction and popular culture. So I, I wanted to really get my hands on that. And then also, I was just really drawn to the human drama of what it must have been like for these men. Because on the one hand, you know, they're police officers, you know, like they're, they're authority figures. They carry a badge and a gun and they're tasked with enforcing the laws of the city of Atlanta. But at the same time, they're second class citizens because they are black men in the Jim Crow South. You know, they still can't check a book out of the public library. They can't use a public swimming pool. They can't eat in most restaurants. They can't ride in the front of the bus if a white person wants that seat. So on the one hand, they're an authority figure, but they're second class. What was it like to navigate that? What was it like for them? What was it like for their families? What was it like for the white cops who are trying to do their jobs at this time in which the city was trying to take a step forward? And what was it like for the community as a whole? I just thought it would be an interesting way to tell a different kind of a story. Like I love mysteries, love murder mysteries. Um, and my favorites tend to be the ones that are set in a very particular time and place where like the setting and like, sort of the greater politics and the greater worldviews of the characters has a big impact on the story itself. It's not just about you know who drew the murder weapon and why, but it's about all the different elements that were going on in the world at that time. And I just thought this would be a really interesting time period to set a story like that. How did you, you create the mindset within yourself? How do you go back and and place yourself into a certain unfamiliar historic scenario? Because in your books, you describe, you know, how these officers were not allowed to dress in their uniforms in the Atlanta Police Department, I believe, and to change in the basement of the Butler Street YMCA. How do you go about creating that mindset? What's your research process? Yeah, I definitely did a lot of research because, you know, if you want to write historical fiction, you want the characters to sound like they are of that time and you don't want them to feel like mouthpieces with, with strangely 2022 or 2023 worldview. I, mean, I wrote the book in 2014, 2015. You know, I don't want them to sound like 21st century people. Um, and, you know, it's, it's tough to navigate as a writer because you want the book to appeal to readers today, but you want to make sure that the characters really feel like they're of that time. So yeah, you know, I did a lot of research. Started with you know, reading other histories of the time period, learning more about what was Atlanta like in the 40s, what was the South in general like in the 40s, but also taking a step back, you know, what was going on in the early 20th century? What what, what world have these characters grown up in? What worlds have their parents grown up in? So I did a lot of research into, you know, the first half of the 20th century, both in Atlanta and the greater South. And, you know, there's a lot of great books about that. You know, they aren't all necessarily for, you know, lay readers. A lot of them are pretty academic, but even those were, were helpful to me because I learned a lot of little facts and tidbits, but just you know, I really want to make sure I understand the world of you. Like, what were the issues in these people's lives? What were they talking about and debating about? What was 
thinkable or imaginable to them. Because there's certain things that you and I think about that were unthinkable back then. But on the flip side, there are a lot of things that were normal for them to think that you and I would find shocking and strange. So I want to make sure that like I'm really inhabiting that older world of you. So it's a lot of research, reading a lot of histories, you know, memoirs, autobiographies, finding old newspapers and things like that. Um, the Atlanta History Center was a great resource. They not only have the well, Emory University too, they have the digital archives at the Atlanta Daily World, which is the city, the only daily black newspaper in America at that time, published in Atlanta. So that was a great perspective. But the Atlanta History Center also had a lot of great um, interviews on, on audio. There was a big oral history project done in the 70s called Living Atlanta that turned into a book, um, but also the the original recordings you can listen to that went a history center. They interviewed people from all walks of life on what the city was like from 1900 to 1950. So that was really fascinating to listen to. Um, a couple of the original eight black cops have interviews. Um, there was an interview with Herbert Jenkins, the white police chief. There was an interview with the man who ran the black who ran the black YMCA, which is where they had their de facto precinct. But also just a lot of other great interviews with people about you know what was it like to to work in Atlanta, what was it like to be you know a housewife in Atlanta, what was it like to be a gambler in Atlanta, like all these different perspectives of what the city was like at that time. It was really helpful to kind of get a sense of what it was like and what people were thinking about and talking about and worried about. The original eight black police officers that were hired, what were, I mean, I, I can't even imagine uh, the prejudices they, they encountered, not only among the white community, but also, from what I understand, there was a lot of resentment in some of the neighborhoods that they were patrolling and that they were assigned to. What were the, the challenges and the obstacles that these men faced at that time? Yeah, and this is one of the things that I learned first when I first heard about the hiring of the first black cops and that made me want to write the story. So even though they were police officers, they had to operate under a number of Jim Crow restrictions. They, as you mentioned, they weren't allowed to wear the uniform to and from work. The city, the mayor didn't want a lone black man in a police uniform to be walking around. They were supposed to walk around with a partner. And part of the concern was that they would be attacked by angry white people to see this black man in uniform. Uh, there was a strong, visceral white prejudice against black men in uniform. A lot of black men returning from World War II and a generation earlier from World War I had been attacked, had been lynched and killed for daring to wear their army uniform or their navy uniform. Um, so many white people in the South didn't want to see that. They you know, objected to the fact that these men had done well and they wanted to take them down a notch, unfortunately. Um, but they also, they were not allowed to patrol white neighborhoods. They could only patrol the black parts of town. They weren't allowed to drive squad cars. As you mentioned, they weren't allowed to use the white police headquarters. They had to use the basement of the black YMCA as their de facto precinct. And last but certainly not least, they could not arrest white people. They only had arrest powers over blacks. And the idea was, you know, if they're patrolling black parts of town, this is a very segregated time. Surely they're not going to see any white people, let alone any white lawbreakers. And if, God forbid, they should see a white person commit a crime, they're supposed to call white officers to assist with the arrest. But of course, you know, real life is a lot messier than that. And so I, that's where I imagine the plot, what would happen if they did see a white person committing a crime. But so they had to operate under all of these crazy Jim Crow restrictions that, you know, are just shocking to us today. But this is the world that they lived in and they had to make the best of it. But yeah, at the same time, as you mentioned, you know, it, it, there were other challenges as well. So 
the white cops, you know, rejected them. White cops were very hostile towards them. And um, there were stories that white cops would try to run them over with their police cars if they saw them. One police officer put out a $200 bounty, offered to pay anyone who would kill one of the black cops. Thankfully, that did not happen. Um, and then, you know, they would use racial epithets in their presence with the CB radios. So th this was not a story of the integration of the police department at all. The police department was still very much segregated for a very, very long time. You had the white department and you had the black precinct operating very, very separately. And then within their community, I think for the most part, they were welcomed because again, black community leaders have been asking for black cops for years because you know, business owners, citizens didn't feel like they had any protection from the law if somebody robbed from them, stole from them, attacked them. You know, the white cops didn't really care. So they, they didn't feel like they had any legal or legal recourse and they wanted it. So most people I think were thankful to have black officers, but at the same time, there are some people that didn't feel that way, that who didn't want to have black cops who felt that they were, you know, I don't want these people arresting me or pulling me over or citing me for being drunk or for running a red light or anything like that. You know, people tend not to love cops and that's the dynamic we see all the time. You know, we like them when we need them, but we don't want them when they're telling us we're doing something wrong. And so, you know, they had to navigate a lot of tensions, both with the white community and, you know, with their own community. And so, so often the case when men and women break barriers and are the first ones through the door, they take a lot of the hits and a lot of the shots and, and pain the way for others. Not all of these men remained with the Atlanta Police Department for their entire careers and, and some may not have had the most ideal careers or endings or to their stories. Tell us what happened, you know, kind of in some broad strokes. What happened with the careers of these men and talk to us a little bit about how they they paved the way for other for other black police officers in Atlanta. Yeah, well it's a very varied story. So, you know, you have eight beginning in 1948, two of them wouldn't even last the year. One of them quit within a few months and the second one quit before the year was out. So it was a very tough job for all the reasons I just explained. And it certainly wasn't for everyone. Um, but, you know, six of the first eight kept on going. And I don't remember how long they all lasted, but some of them lasted many, many, many years. One of them went on to, be, to help uh, the Decatur Police Department, your neighboring Decatur, hire their first black officers, I believe, in the 60s and led that effort. Um, at least one of them made it to major. Um, I think a couple of them were still officers in the mid to late 70s. So a lot of them did stick around and endure. And I spoke to some men who became cops in the early 60s. So at that point, some of the originals had been there for 12, 14 years and were veterans. And they spoke glowingly about these men and how you know, they were great cops. They were very strong. They were very morally upstanding. And you know they'd, they'd been through a lot to get to where they were. And they did their best to bring up the next generation as well. Um, and also, you know, this was a stepping stone to the middle class for a lot of families. Um, you know, a lot of people who become community leaders, black community leaders in the 70s, 80s, 90s, had fathers who were cops. Um, there was a congresswoman, um, oh my God, I'm forgetting her name, I'm sorry, but a congresswoman in the 90s, her father was one of the first black cops in the um, early or late 40s and early 50s. Um, Cesar Mitchell, who was recently the president of the Atlanta City Council. His father wasn't one of the original eight, but was hired soon thereafter, I think, in the early 50s. And you know, a lot of stories of, you know, very successful families. And it was started by, you know, a father or a grandfather was a black cop. And 
you know, it was it was a big stepping stone into the middle class for a lot of people. So you know, it was it was a tough job. Not everybody did it for very long, but those who stuck around were able to have a really big impact. And again, it, I see it as like one of the first steps in the civil rights movement in Atlanta, which would become you know a, a key city in the movement. So you're the author of Dark Town, Whitening Men, Men Nine Atlanta. For one, I understand are these the three books that that really deal with this particular time period and these these individuals. Kind of kind of slowing us through your entire chronology and books. And then I want to talk to hear you talk a little bit about your new novel coming out in twenty three called Blind Spot. So so take us through a, a itinerary of all your books and what they what they talk about for our sure. viewers and listeners. Well, I'd written three novels before this series. I'd written a couple of historical novels and one book set in contemporary Washington. Books that kind of straddle the genre between literary fiction and crime. There's always some element of crime or suspense in them. But when I learned about you know this time period, and I was just so fascinated. I, I wrote Darktown, which is set in the summer of 1948, so just a few months after the first black cops have started. And it follows two of the black rookies and two white cops, one of whom they suspect of having committed a murder. Um, so I got to sort of trace sort of the white side of Atlanta and the black side of Atlanta through this very interesting time period in the context uh, of a murder mystery. And as I was writing Darktown and doing the research, I was just learning so much and there was so much I wanted to tackle that I realized that it could become a very, very long book, which I didn't want. And I, and I decided, well, you know, this other subplot that I had an idea for, maybe that's book two and maybe this thing here could be book three. So I decided to make it a series. Um, the second book, Lightning Men, is set in the uh, fall of 1950, at a time when a lot of formerly white neighborhoods were integrating. Although integrating still isn't quite the right word, because what would happen is one black family or two black families would move into a neighborhood, and within a year, all the white families would move out, and it would become a black neighborhood. And there were a lot of tensions at that time, and there was even a neo-Nazi organization called the Columbians that appeared to try to stop Black families from moving into certain communities. So Lightning Man is about that time period. And there's also, again, you know, a murder mystery that the officers are exploring. And then the third book, Midnight Atlanta, is set at the end of 55 and early 56, at the same time that the Montgomery bus boycott is just beginning. And that, of course, is happening a state away, so it's not that big of a story in Atlanta, but people are certainly aware of it. And it, it involves what was the King Jr., whose father was a reverend in Atlanta. But that story involves the murder of an editor of the Black newspaper. Um, I call it the Atlanta Daily News. It's not really about the Atlanta Daily World. I didn't want to write about a real newspaper, so I kind of created a fictionalized version. But um, it's about a murder of the Black editor, and it's investigated by a black crime writer who used to be a police officer and also investigated by his former boss, who is the only white officer in the black precinct. Um, when the city hired a black cops, they were led by a white sergeant. Um, and I, he's a minor character in the first two books, but I always thought it would be interesting to delve more deeply into his character and explore what, what was it like for this guy to be the one white cop in the black neighborhood, to be the one white sergeant overseeing you know, eight and then more black rookies. What, what was it like for him? And so I, I didn't want him to be a focal point of the first couple of books because I didn't think his story was really the most important element. And also I wanted him to be a somewhat mysterious figure to the black officers. I'm not really sure if they can trust him or not. But by the third book, I wanted to give him a chance to sort of step onto the stage a bit. So yeah, it's three different books, all in different 
years, you know, 48, 50, 55, so much is changing in Atlanta. And I, I wanted to use the books partly as a way to explore the evolution of Atlanta, the evolution of the South in this time when the civil rights movement is beginning to pick up speed. And coming out in 2023 is Blind Spots. Tell us about that. So that's something pretty different. Um, you know, after spending the almost a decade writing and reading about the Jim Crow South, I wanted to change things a little bit for a variety of reasons. So Blind Spits is sort of a blind spots, I should say, is a slightly um, futuristic story. It's kind of in the vein of Philip K. Dick books like, you know, Blade Runner and Minority Report. It's about a time in which people use devices to enhance their vision and someone has found out a way to hack everyone's vision to commit crimes without anyone seeing them. And so it's about the investigation into this. And it's sort of a, you know, an analogy about the ways that we've all become so dependent on technology and the ways in which technology is really skewing our vision of the world and the way social media and other things online are giving us all pretty skewed visions of what's really happening in the world. And I wanted to address that in a, in a new way. And this has just been a, a fascinating and enjoyable conversation. I could send a talk with, with you about history in Atlanta for hours and hours. We're going to be very respectful of your time and our audience's time. Tell us, um, do you have a website, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any of that good stuff? Yeah. And our, our listeners can learn more about Sure. My website's thomasmullen.net. Um, and my Twitter handle is MullenWrites. Although, as we record this, Twitter is going up in flames. So I don't know if Twitter will be around or not. Oh, yeah. We, we see it. Oh, no, not that. But that's okay. Yeah. Twitter and Instagram, my, my handle is MullenWrites. Um, and yeah, the, the, the new book comes out April 4th. So looking forward to it. And yeah, thanks. This has been fun. Thanks to Thomas Mullen. Thanks to all of you for watching and listening to our continuing coverage of Atlanta 185.